So today I'm coming in in a very different, unconventional way. It's good to have you, Eddie. Yeah. Um, and welcome to the Visions and Tones. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a while of trying to come together around the table to have a bit of a conversation um, about whatever topics that really comes to mind. But I was more interested in your fields of yeah. expertise and. I mean, you might still consider yourself as somebody who's rising in that field, um, but I think you probably you you greatly possess a certain level of knowledge than I would yep. or than I do, and I'm looking forward, you know, learning a lot and having um, a good conversation with you, you know. So, if you are to tell the listeners who is who is Eddie and yep. and where you're from, why you're here, in a very you know brief manner, but fair manner as possible, also. For sure. Uh, Tony, thanks again for having me. Uh, for the listeners who are joining us for the first time, maybe who have never heard my voice, my name is Eddie Onoka. So I'm a final year Jewish doctor student at the University of Newcastle. I also have experience working as a law clerk here in Newcastle at a national plaintiff firm. I'm originally from Kenya. Did my schooling there, my primary and my high school. And then to South Africa, I got accepted at the University of Cape Town, where I did my undergraduate in economics and law. I went back to Kenya just before the onset of the pandemic. I was working at a petroleum company in Kenya, just diversifying my education and my work experience. And then I got a remarkable opportunity to come study down under, as they call it, in 2021. Unfortunately, due to the travel restrictions, I began my first year online. So I only came down to Australia in 2022. Uh, a few weeks ago, just marked my first year here. Oh, nice. Yeah. So it's been a whirlwind experience for me. I think I've lived a few lifetimes in that wow. first year I've been here. But I must say it's a great, great, great environment here in Australia, particularly here in Newcastle. Not too fast, not too slow. And for those who have perhaps a legal background or are interested in legal studies, it's a great place to be with regards to um, Indigenous rights law, family law, and basically... All the law that in, encompasses um, social aspects, so not necessarily tech or finance, law that encompasses dealing with people, human rights law as well. It's a great place to do it in Newcastle. And you're funded by the university. You know what you're canvassing for them, sounding like an ambassador somewhere there. <laughs> Shameless plug. Shout out to you. So when you, say, when you say it's, it's, it's great, is it top notch? In it the is. What number compared to your Griffith, your Melbourne and, and Sydney and stuff? Yep. So arguably Melbourne is the leading uh, law school in Australia and in this part of the world in the Asia Pacific. Mm -hmm. But with regards to practical legal training, I mean giving you hands-on experience, what a day-to-day -day life as a lawyer looked like, Newcastle is number one, hands down. How do you know that though? Oh, they claim it. They put it on their website and it's one of the flagships that they use to attract students from all over the world. Yeah, but like you said, flagships are attract. What if it's <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> true true about that? Someone could say, come to Melbourne. It's more yeah. of a busy city. Diversity, you learn yeah. to understand more uh, the laws of diversity, human rights, as opposed yeah. to what is happening in Newcastle. So shouldn't we take that into consideration perhaps? For sure. That's a concrete argument. Uh -huh. But I think if you want a top-class university, also that at a price that's convenient because at the end of the day the Jewish doctor degree is quite an expensive mm. you know educational pursuit so if you're looking at a budget and getting world-class education I think it's good to make a decision to go to a place where you wouldn't be too strapped financially mm -hmm. but you can also spread your wings educationally as well and it's quite I'm, diverse. I'm not sure about that yeah. well I, I came from the very same university but I deal more with sociology you know yes. poli poli political science and so on and so forth and I mean, well, if anyone from my department hears this, will basically think negative of me. But I wouldn't really say it's the best place for me that I thought I should be yeah. in. Compared to if you look at our program and look at the program in Melbourne, yeah. I think in Melbourne there's more interaction, there's more live, you know, yeah. there's more also, um, what do you call it? I forget what it is. But anywho, people in Melbourne are alive, basically, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Well, know, there's Victoria more autonomy, as, yeah, so to say. That's, that's true. basically what I was looking for. There's more autonomy for, for the students. And I think being there, perhaps the active life, the PhD active life would have been far more greater than here because here I felt like I was more in a lonely space. And which some other things that we're going to sort of talk about more 
you know, in terms of your experiences being a person of color in a space like Newcastle, yeah. where you discover that many people are, you know, they'll, they'll claim that they haven't really done much work of, work, work, work of life outside of Newcastle. Sure. Therefore, their perceptions about things, you know, tend to be a little bit limited, so to say. Yeah. Uh, the way they deal with diversity, the way they deal with multiculturalism, in, in many cases, I'm sorry for saying this, and it's a number of times that I've sort of echoed this in different episodes, I feel like there's still a little bit of a lagging behind. In, 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 in writing, it's yeah. beautiful, but in action, it's a complete different thing in terms of mm-hmm. giving students you know, wings to fly in different departments. It might not be particularly in the school in which you're in, but in other schools, there's still a lot of work that I think needs to be done in this space. Absolutely. I think that's a fair assessment, you know, looking at it from the point of view of a person of color or any marginalized community here in Australia. But the approach I usually have is more of a holistic approach. I think as an individual, it's important to encompass a growth mindset um, into the way you deal with people and the way you deal with things. Coming into an environment where perhaps you might be a vast minority, it's important to have the mindset of I'm going to take on a new challenge. I'm going to stretch myself cognitively and reach out to people perhaps I wouldn't have reached out to in my previous environments. And it's a great challenge for growth, especially as a young academic, you know, someone who's in a position to grow and expand their network. For me, it's something that's very essential. And to leverage that experience once you're in a bigger city like Melbourne or Sydney or Perth, it's a remarkable experience. When I drive down there and I speak to people perhaps who are in Newcastle for uni, Mm -hmm. now they're working in Sydney full-time. They say you know, they wouldn't have it any other way. The fact that they were exposed to such a regional environment early in their lives, now that we're in a contemporary or multicultural environment, they know how to navigate effectively. And I think that's something that I can relate to. And I try and... With people in Melbourne or here? No, Melbourne, Melbourne and Sydney. People who perhaps who, when they first came to Australia, they were in a regional area. And then... Oh, I see. You, when they completed their studies, they moved outside. They say it's much better to follow that approach rather than come from a multicultural city and then move to a regional area for your work, you'll find that it's a bit narrow with regards to your opportunities and your resources. And it can really be disheartening if you got used to the big cities. And look, I love your analysis of it to say any person who comes from a marginalized space or group need to think about how much I have to work when I step outside there. And of which I think it's a beautiful thing for any other young person listening to this who might come from, you know, back home in Africa or elsewhere. So you might have your own ambitions and, you know, um, but you need to be very much careful about how the space will be because very often what is written on advertisement is just advertisement to be honest. But your analysis for me is interesting in a sense that you moved from Kenya and you went to South Africa, which basically you are already familiar with the system of being away from home, right? Yep. Which for somebody who might come directly from home to here it might be a different story. Perhaps it was also a different environment for you living Kenya to South Africa. You might have had certain expectations, anticipated certain things, but the ground itself might have received you differently. But it might have also received you in a good way because you're a person of color and there's a majority of people of color there compared to if you go to a space where you are a total minority. It might look completely different, right? That's right. So I love your analysis, but I don't want sort of people to sort of downplay the fact that experiences, yes, experiences would be different on people, but people should not downplay the importance of, you know, how you assimilate to a space, but also what you carry into a space. And it's a very good point to say people should anticipate working hard. Yeah. Very often, 10 times harder than domestic yeah. students would, in a way. That's know? 100% correct. So why corporate law? I think it's just a very fascinating space. You know, human beings by nature, we are economic animals. We want to advance, take care of our families and, you know, reach a certain sense of financial freedom. And that's what corporate and commercial law basically centers upon, you know, bigger businesses, perhaps buying smaller businesses, smaller businesses trying to branch out and they need lawyers to do the transactions, to do the contracting and basically stimulating the economy from the ground level up from your SMEs, from your sole entrepreneurs and your traders. Most of these transactions need a frame of regulations in order for them to be transparent, number one, and in order for them to be amenable in the future. So I always give the example of a kiosk owner or a store owner for people who don't know what a kiosk is. Maybe he's entrepreneurial in nature and he sees that if he merges with a bigger retail store, 
that he will be in a better economically viable position. Now, the smart thing to do would be to analyze which companies would give me the best return on equity. And once I identify that company, reach out to a lawyer who will give me the best contract, meaning that I'll still be economically stable once I merge with a bigger company, and I'll still have a say in the company's day-to-day affairs um, through my rollover equity. So I think corporate and commercial law is interesting. It's not for everyone. You know, there are very many practice areas you can choose from, but it's a good place to just get your feet wet in, get an understanding of how business works um, from the contract team perspective. So who in particular would you say it's for if you say it's not for everyone? Let's start <laughs> eliminating. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from experience, I found that people who are more empathetic and are more customer-based, it wouldn't be the best practice area of law for them. So they'd be more suitable in family law or maybe human rights law. People who have, you know, they say anecdotally, a big heart. If you have a big heart, perhaps you'd want to do a practice law, a practice area of law that encompasses you having day-to-day interactions with people. When you're dealing with businesses and you're dealing with these corporations, they are entities by themselves, meaning you don't really see who's behind the curtain. You only see the name of company X and company Y, which is good if you don't really want to get into the nitty-gritties of dealing with human interactions. You just want to see businesses flourish. It's a great place to start. Also, if you have a background in finance, in tax, in accounting, if you're the type of person who enjoys seeing economies grow from the ground up, corporate commercial law is definitely a viable option for you. But I'd go as far as saying it's a viable option for anyone. You know, we're all entrepreneurs. You're an entrepreneur, uh, Dr. T as well. So I think (laughs) engaging in corporate law, even if you're not a lawyer, just, you know, developing an interest for it will put you in a remarkable position. Uh But now if the nitty gritty is that you say very often, they're not as important sometimes. I'm curious knowing whether corporate law, doesn't it need rough people same way as criminal law because very often even in corporate law there's criminal activities that often take place and very often the nitty-gritty that one might want to overlook might actually be important in order in, in terms of you know litigating and whatever that's correct uh but i think rough is a bit of an overestimation at least in my opinion you reckon yeah so I, what do we see happening in your suits and your how to get away with murder which are american productions they're just really to stay up our energy it's not really the case uh reckon? those are good shows and i think they've deserved the, sh- the awards that they've won uh-huh. uh, but i wouldn't go as far as saying they're an accurate depiction of what happens day to day in saying that you know all the things you see in those shows do happen but they're the rarity Perhaps when there's a conflict uh, between two parties is when you see, you know, the real human nature. People peel off their masks and show who they really are. But more often than not, at least in my small experience, most people who are engaging in business and, you know, want to get lawyers to see the deal through are very, you know, respectable and reasonable people. At the end of the day, they just want the bottom line to rise. So they're not going to go as far as backstabbing or insider trading or, you know, some of the scandalous things that we see in these shows but i'm not gonna go as far as saying that they don't happen they do mm-hmm. but it's uh, definitely not as common practice as you see on television so safe to say you need to be able to unleash your darker side once <laughs> and again when yeah. you incorporate law. it's not really a space of i'm no. dealing with just migration law and nothing can happen that's it you need to have a, a bit of an edge to you a bit of a dark edge to you right. sometimes yeah um i wouldn't lead with it I think that energy is not conducive for any relationship, let alone business. But more often than not, people will show you that side. So in order to retaliate and to ensure that the business goes through, you also need to, you know, per se, fight uh, fire with fire. But I think a solid groundwork for great business is cordial relationships. At the end of the day, you want to be at least friendly with the person on the other side of the table you're doing a deal with. Sometimes these deals, you know, there are massive amounts of money. We're talking about hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. So you want to be in a position to have return business. And that can't be possible if you're showing people your dark side every day. You know, you want to be friendly. You want to develop a reputation as someone who understands human relations and understands business. Because that's what's going to bring you more business. But that sounds very soft. Am I really too much consumed by, you know, (laughs) these productions? 
that we see on, on, on whatever. Because the space looked like it's a dog eat dog, but with you it seems like you want to be the soft kind of you know litigator. You want to take us into uh, a space where we still remain friends. But I need money. I'm interested in money. I want to save my company. I don't want to lose no dollars. I think soft is a it's a misnomer. I think in the book of The Art of War by Sun Tzu, he uh-huh. says the easiest way to subdue the enemy is by killing him without having to use violence. So if you want to get something from someone, let's say I want to get something from you, the easiest way to get it from you is to manipulate you in a way you think we're collaborating. And that's what you see with many of these big companies, many of these big litigators. They're masters of conversation. They're masters of manipulation. So they will have an ulterior motive before the meeting comes. They will execute their agenda in a way that's so perfect, you'll feel that it's a 50-50, it's a win-win. But more often than not, you'll find that it's not really uh, beneficial for you in the extent that they make it. But that's also another interesting part because both negotiators are very strong in their background. Both negotiators are experienced. So it's important to know the devil that you're dealing with, you know, going into negotiation. Have you you gone through uh, Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power? I have. You have? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's a certain way that you speak about manipulation in a very seductive way. And I'm like, you're talking about manipulation, it's a dangerous thing, but you, you project it as a beautiful thing, but it's actually... It's, it's it's a form of violence, so to say, and and I'm not picking up because you're trying to quote um, uh, um, the art. Is it the art of what? Yeah, the art of war. The art of war, yeah. right? The art of war. I don't know to what extent should we really receive some of these books exactly as the authors are presenting them, or is it not a matter of, as Jordan Peterson would like to sort of put it, that it's very important for one to learn. Uh, so I'm paraphrasing him now yeah. to sort of learn to be um, a tough person, a rough person, a dangerous person, yeah. an evil person. Yeah. But then later on, you know how to sort of navigate your space around the evil aspect, so to say. Yeah. So in, in, in this case, I'm thinking Robert Greene speaks of seduction, but the way you're presenting also the art of war, it sounds like it's a certain kind of seduction. But really, the, the, the better ground is different because shouldn't it matter or depend on what kind of an enemy you're really facing? If I know that I'm facing a, a very combative person who's you know more of an attacker than a defense line, should I sit on a defense line? Or if you're attacking, I should be somebody attacking. who's also attacking. I think that's a great question. And I'm a big fan of uh, Jordan Peterson as well. I think he always alludes to civilizing the mind, savaging the body, having this exterior that people will respect and doing business with. And it's a great backdrop if you're going to engage in business with people. But uh, another aspect of the book, you know, uh, The Art of War, that I think is very applicable, not just to legal engagements, but to engagements with people, is if you know yourself and if you know the enemy, you don't have to fear you know, the outcomes of a thousand battles. Meaning, if I have an engagement with someone and perhaps they've developed this reputation of being very tough and being aggressive, I think I need to increase my self-awareness, number one. Know what my strengths are. And if I'm coming from a position where I'm very self-aware, dealing with them and whatever they have to present will be easier because I know how I'll respond emotionally to certain aspects and I've already done my homework on them. I know how they'll project themselves. So it makes the interaction where I'm, I'm on the front foot moving forward and more often than not, I'll get the best possible outcome in a negotiation. Mm-hmm. So these, some of these skills, they're you know, particularly related to our career, but they're re- applicable in many aspects of life. So I try and develop this holistic education where I'm going to work, I'm acting as a fly on the wall, learning from these experienced lawyers and litigators, but I'm developing personally as well. Because that also needs a lot of work. Continuous improvement is key. And I think if you can transfer skills you learn from one avenue in your life to another avenue, it puts you in the sphere of high-performance people. And that's where I'd like to be and reside permanently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So obviously engaging for the eight laws of power, art of war, and yeah. have, you, have you checked also all the, the three books of Peterson, Maps of Meaning? I've, I've seen Maps of Meaning um, yeah. in a YouTube video. And I think Peterson has an exceptional mind in that he can relate so many different aspects of human existence to particular relatable experiences. So 
for me, I wouldn't go as far as saying that I'm a proponent of his philosophies. I think he's developed this abrasive uh, personality on YouTube where some people love him, some people hate him. But as I said, you know, the mark of a confident person is someone who can take in different aspects of other people and make a decision on what to keep and what to discard. So yeah, for Peterson, I will read uh, more of his literature, but I'm a big fan, definitely a big fan. You would read... Yeah, I'd be open to reading more of his literature. Right. I think yeah, he's definitely a thought leader and he's come from the root of an academic, which I respect more than some of these gurus you see on YouTube who have no academic backing, yet they have the you know, the resources that they've developed through questionable schemes, questionable programs that they sell on social media. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that uh, Jordan Peterson has an academic backing and he, you know, he has empirical studies that support his findings i think it gives him more credibility and someone that i can look up to another another person who's sponsoring your coming to the visit the toast today again <laughs> two things that you've mentioned very beautifully today uh, um in terms of showing your fanatic bias yeah it's high up there okay good but I, I guess why i wanted to go with that my initial question is that would you say everybody who is pursuing law or even other kind of disciplines that, in, you know, entails interacting with people in the community really should invest themselves in reading books such as uh, 48 Laws of Power or there's a certain level in which 48 Laws of Power can corrupt men. And, and perhaps what sort of, as while men pursue values and virtue by reading these books uh, even though they don't come from a legal framework in terms of your case but they are more of a humanistic you know social living and political reasoning and so on and so forth to what extent should people tame their personalities and their attitudes in the sense that they become careful not to just use so for almost for for instance picture somebody who's doing um jiu-jitsu or whatever you know um taekwondo you know they'll be taught that some people will tell that this is this is your weapon. Yeah. And as your weapon, you need to have the discipline that you don't just unleash it anyhow, like a crazy person who's not happy about something and decide to take out a gun. So you need to sort of keep your weapon with you. Don't be impulsive because you've got a gun then you feel like I could be the hero of the day or I could just go and pister people off in their you know confidence. So in, to what extent would you say then people who are pursuing legalistic framework or your social sciences, apart from their particular prescribed text, they should engage this kind of books. And if in so doing, how should they tame their personalities? Uh, that's a great question, Tony. And I think it's a multifaceted one. So it deals with nature versus nurture. As a lawyer, how much should you apply some of the aspects that you've learned outside the law you know, to manipulate certain situations? I think you need to exercise caution and discretion. Mm-hmm. As so far as the jiu-jitsu example, I think it's a great analogy because you'll find most of the black belts, most of the people who have you know, a great understanding of martial arts tend to be the most peaceful people. They tend to move with a certain aura, a certain charisma that denotes that they respect themselves as much. They wouldn't resort to violence unless it's the last option. And I think it's the same in the law. If you have a deeper understanding of certain aspects of certain regulations, I think you should apply them to serve humanity. I don't think you should go as far as trying to be deleterious, trying to knock other people down in order for you to gain a financial edge. With great power comes great responsibility. And one of the things that they speak about in your commencement address, meaning at the end of your degree when you graduate, is now that you're a custodian of the law, use it for good and not for evil. Even if you're going into a space where you're going to be in the financial markets, you're going to be dealing with bigger businesses, exercise a certain level of discretion as to how you use the law to benefit people and not to disenfranchise others. And I always give the example of human rights lawyers. They get a bad rep in our industry as, you know, the bottom of the pile. They're ambulance chasers, people who are always looking for victims to represent. But I think the great, a better perspective is to Look at it from the sense of they are the watchdogs, they are the keepers of justice, particularly in the modern world where justice is being compromised all over. People's rights are being you know, delineated from them. We need people who are human rights lawyers who come out and say, this is wrong, I'm going to advocate against this. And they work in tandem with bodies like Amnesty International, 
you know, the United Nations, the World Economic Forum. These are the advocates of the contemporary age that need to be protected because without them, it will be anarchy and we don't want to, you know, descend to a level where human beings don't respect each other. There's no rule of law and, you know, what usually comes from that is not great. But obviously, while you're looking, while they are looking at, you know, we need to make sure that the law is being followed, protected, and whatsoever. To some extent, should we say, because there's that corrupt aspect of human nature at the same time, and and silence, and deciding whose voices should we speak for, and and when should we speak for who, and and how do we speak, and so on. Because I'm thinking about too many cases that are happening in the world where you, you'd ask yourself, where's the human rights lawyers, for instance, in the case of what is happening in the Congo right now, the, 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 the artisanal miners of cobalt and yep. many other things, right? You'd ask yourself the question, all right, now we've entered a conversation of the trans narrative, you know, gender literature is growing and so on and so forth. But then you discover this... Um, People like, I forget her name, sorry, Mboma from uh, uh, um, Namibia, people like Kasta Semenya in South Africa, and I think uh, the other one is Margaret, I'm forgetting her name, from Kenya, yeah. who are sort of temperamental kind of women. They are sort of structured like men, but they yeah. are cisgendered. Well, I, let me not say particularly cisgendered because okay. I know Kasta is part of the LGBT at the same time. Yeah. But now being pushed by you know, um, the, the the international sports body to say she need to reduce testosterone in order for her to participate in a sports for women. But at the same time, you see transgender women getting into the space of women's sports, but nothing much has been said. That for me, that has mm. remained a bigger question is to say where then does human rights, you know, lawyers step in? I mind you about activists, because activists are very conflicted to me in so many different ways it's easy to can you know just pay out an activist and then the, you know their activism swing to a different direction every now and then i teach social movements so i would know the darker side of social movements so to say but i'm not appealing for authority to be trusted easily with what i'm saying what's your take on that i think i'll start by saying thank you for raising such a pertinent point with regards to human rights particularly for marginalized groups like the lgbt community and for people perhaps who are undergoing persecution in their home countries such as the scene in congo i always start with the analogy of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so the people who are in these places of power more often than not they need a certain framework that keeps them in check and stronger than the opposition because more often than not, particularly in developing countries, in third world countries, the opposition can be bought for a particular price. So in instances where human rights are being violated and human rights lawyers are going above and beyond to ensure that these cases are being heard in the certain cases and you know they've been outcomes that are coming that are favorable, I think international bodies need to play their part to a larger extent to ensure that the law is being followed to the letter and instances where the law is being violated that they are adjudicated overseas be it in the international criminal court be it by regulatory bodies that certain countries are signatories to more of these efforts need to be stepped up to ensure that justice is served to the masses you raise a great example in the congo region with regards to the cobalt there are government officials who are overseeing these projects there are government lawyers who are very aware of what's happening in these countries, but they remain silent. Why? Because certain bodies, certain regulatory frameworks can be purchased for a particular price. And it's, it's sad to see, but it's the reality. So in order for these people not to be compromised financially, not to have their morals be checked at a certain budget of a foreign power, I think the Amnesty International world bodies need to come together and put a certain kitty, put a certain fund group that can assist some of these government officials to live a life that's congruent with the high values that they've been aspired to as leaders of the country. I always give the example of people are not corrupted because they're intrinsically evil. People are corrupted because they're tired of the situation that they find themselves in and they seek alternatives even if it means a ramification of their character. So if you come to me and I'm a government official, ideally I want to serve the people because I have a good heart. But if I feel like this government is letting me down with regards to my payment, my benefits, my fringe activities, I'm not the person I thought I would be, then I'm very amenable to suggestions from outside. And people take advantage of that. 
you know, human nature, as much as we want to be these people who are of high standards and of high regard, sometimes we are susceptible to being to being influenced negatively. So international bodies, just going back to your question, need to play a bigger role into investigating these crimes, into solving them expeditiously, and working in liaison with these government officials and government lawyers, giving them enough financial backing to ensure that they don't just see the atrocities happening in their countries and turn the other side. But again, I, I'm, I don't see this as an easy task out of it, right? For instance, and I saw a couple of speakers right now coming up to sort of link Elon Musk's businesses with Cobalt, you know, the self-driven car, electric cars and whatever the case, yep. you know, how the batteries are sort of formed and what resources they use, which Cobalt is basically one of, you know, yep. um, what is being named. So obviously you would think about it that to destroy Elon Musk might be intrinsically to touch a little bit of the American economy, so to say, if we are to think carefully about it, because it it has to do with employment, it has to do with um, uh, transportation, it has to do with you know cutting off certain people from being dependent to the state. So I'm not sure exactly how we can tackle this because some, you know, we I don't have the full facts of certain things, but some states might be keeping quiet because there's a certain benefit that is actually there for us. If we disrupt that movement there, we're going to incur a lot of responsibilities over ourselves so as long as somebody is keeping people it's the same as religion to me you know sometimes you'll see in other countries when there's bad religious organizations and people are aware that there's tax invasions then there might be drug laws and so on and so forth people wouldn't report those states certain governments wouldn't go and fight against those because if you fight against those if the america churches what are you going to do with ten thousand people who are now not spiritual they're going to come to you so keep them busy keep them praying keep them singing keep them doing something as long as they're not in our doors causing so many problems right a question that I wanted to sort of ask you is where or if ever there's any intersection between corporate law and international law. Now thinking about the very same cases of put on the table, the issue of the Congos and whatsoever. Yep. Do, is there any space between those For sure. to coexist and how does it look like? The interaction between corporate law and international law is seen particularly in commercial activity. So it's far from the human rights um, misgivings we see online. It's basically things to do with businesses seeing other opportunities elsewhere and jumping into the market while it's hot. I think uh, the most relevant one that just happened a few weeks ago was L'Oreal's acquisition of Aesop. Now, L'Oreal is a multi-billion and global cosmetics company. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to jump into the Australian market uh, by buying this cosmetics brand, which is big here. You know, makeup is a big industry across the world. Australia is no exception. So you'll see... interaction between corporate law and international law where huge corporates see a market elsewhere they want to spread their tentacles with regards to their market reach so they reach out to the lawyers within that local country they execute a trade where there's a merger that occurs and it's usually beneficial for both parties where the party that buys the company gains majority stakeholdership and the company that's bought out has rollover equity meaning they have a minority stake now but they have decision-making power in the future events of the company, which is, in my opinion, it's a great idea. You still have your eyes on your business, which you worked so hard to grow. It's a win-win, and it shows interdependence. But in the in the extent of corporate law and international law merging t- to solve maybe human rights issues, I think there's still a long way to go, particularly where we come from. The countries which we come from, you'll see some of these corporate bodies, they'll change and morph themselves into different entities in order to extract minerals, resources, and brain drain, such as, you know, there's so many arguments against uh, some of these former British companies, which still have presences in East African, Southern African countries, which still conduct business, which still, you know, they have massive turnovers if you look at their audit statements, yet nobody holds them accountable to the human rights violations that they have. So... There needs to be an oversight into the type of business interactions between corporate law and international law, particularly when a first world country engages with a third world country. Because so many injustices get swept under the carpet under the pretext of business, and we need to shed a light on them and expose some of these uh, misgivings to the public. I like that in your 
analysis, you're actually full of propositions of solutions, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so you do believe that the world can be a better place, but do you For ever sure. foresee it really becoming a better world? I do. You know, Tony, me, I'm a glass half full person. I'm an optimist by nature and it matches well with the type of work that I do. I don't believe we are the leaders of tomorrow. I believe we are the leaders of today and change, particularly in the information age where we have phones and we have social media, can begin at a local level with yourself. Being an advocate for change, calling out injustice when you see it, plays a big role. You know, it's the butterfly effect where a butterfly flaps its wings in Texas and the, the weather changes in South America. And it's the same thing with, you know, human change and social change. Me advocating against a certain issue I see in another country causes a wind spill effect in that country where they see, ah, there's a young person who wants to highlight issues that we're facing here. Why don't we pick up the slack ourselves and examine these issues in a better focus? And before you know it, it's a trending topic. It's a global issue. And the leaders who are above us are paying more attention. But I think you, you're right. And, but I'm not sure about the level of optimism. I think there's certain dangers with the level of optimism that you have. I'm not saying divorce it completely, but I'm saying perhaps to look at it carefully because from my analysis of the world, it depends what exactly you're more advocating for. If it's the topic of the day, you might get a jackpot but if it's not really a topic of the day you might be censored and you might be considered one of the dangerous people that you have to be careful of in terms of the future and again the so-called speaking out today it's a matter of you know in a, it has to be in a commercial commercialized world who are we sending out there to be the voice that can be a popular voice and then we deem this young person as the best or whatsoever i mean look at what happens to the likes of greta thunberg right then oh let's find someone who's got autism and you know let's prepare this and prepare that this is going to be a brilliant voice then later on you discover that she's actually you know advocating for a certain form of energy it's not just a matter of climate yeah. change it's a certain form of energy then the question is wasn't she weaponized then today becomes a topic of the day imagine if greta was given the, the the nobel peace prize i don't know if it ended up happening but i remember at some point there were calls to give greta thunberg a nobel peace prize so you think about it to say okay so who do we give a nobel peace prize to somebody that we can weaponize based on oh they've got this quality and that quality this can be the best person to speak out out there but how about vanessa nakate is it nakate i think nakate, yeah. yeah vanessa nakate who's been speaking about climate change but at the same time in tandem with racism and then that's not a famous person we cannot brand this one because there's an element of race that doesn't speak to what we want to achieve at this particular moment. So I think it's good to have a certain level of optimism, yeah. but I think a lot of young people would champion for a better society, but they're not making it out there. It's a matter of let's ask ourselves a question. So what could be the reason for them not making it out there? Is it because their politics involves something that might not be fashionable to the rest of the powerhouses in the world? Yeah. Or there's just something about it? I don't know. What would you say about that? Wow. I think you've, you've raised a profound point in that certain people get the spotlight based on being weaponized to fulfill a certain agenda. And certain people perhaps might not get the attention that they need, yet they're raising same, if not even bigger issues yeah. that the world needs to pay attention to. But I think you're right in saying that certain optimism needs to be counteracted with caution. You know, I think it's Warren Buffett who always says, never test the depth of the water with both your feet. Put yeah. one foot first. Mm -hmm have an understanding of how deep it is, and then go full in. And I think that a similar approach needs to be done with how much optimism you have into solving the world's issues. They're not going to be solved overnight, but a small change in recognizing that there's certain problems that need to be, you know, attended to immediately, you know, it puts you in good stead to now analyze the issue, come up with creative solutions, accept feedback accept a positive, you know, feedback loop or a negative feedback loop on what's working, and then make an informed decision. I wouldn't go as far as saying I'm an adversary to Greta Thunberg's policies. I think she's done a great job with regards to raising awareness on environmental issues. But as you said, you know, there are very many other young people who are raising bigger issues and perhaps might not be given the platform to express themselves as much as she has. And when it gets to a point where these people are getting into back and forth, as I've seen with Greta, with some controversial figures online like Andrew Tate, I don't think we should be putting people in a situation where they're adversarial, where it's me against you, instead of it's me and you against the problem. That just compounds the issues further and it 
points a negative light to younger people perhaps who might be inspired to take on societal change but fear you know having lashbacks and critics online perhaps who might be older and more experienced than them it doesn't create a conducive environment for growth in my opinion so i i really like the approach that you said of maybe looking at miss um, nakate or other people who are coming up who perhaps have profound ideas that can lead to the betterment of society if they're given enough exposure enough platforms to do so i think they'll have remarkable results and it's something that i advocate for which is good yeah but part of your politics they have advocacy for ra- against racism don't yes, they absolutely i just had to guess that right <laughs> yeah. now tell us your your own politics and the way in which you enter the space of australia right now because australia is one country that you know the race topic is a very much of a let's excuse that one they can talk about many other things infidelities corruption you know uh, whatever the case child molestation they can really talk with more confidence but the race debate seems to be more of a pain how's your surrounding in terms of your 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 class your yep. lecturers your interaction with them your and does your advocacy come out there or you have to censor yourself a little bit because this ground or this topic is not more of a popular topic uh for sure i think just coming into such a different space i had to exercise a bit of caution with regards to my views you'll have to accept the fact that i'm coming from a south african perspective where i really really found and espoused the views of Steve Biko with mm-hmm. black consciousness yeah. so i'm coming into a space where perhaps people are not exposed even to this type of frame of thinking and for me to articulate my views on certain issues such as race which is such a sensitive topic in any multicultural society i think i needed to exercise a certain level of discretion and also just you know it's a merit based society as much as these injustices are happening and people of color you know perhaps have been disenfranchised here they do recognize merit they do recognize hard work diligence committing to a cause and being excellent at what you do so i thought perhaps my approach would be let my work speak for me first and once i'm in a position where i've earned certain people's trust i can advocate for issues rather than coming from one aspect of i'm going to come here and i'm going to be the first human rights activism you know people of color need to be respected i found that it's true in that statement but it's not the most attractive approach to deal with issues because if i come with an energy of you know i don't like how people are being treated here mm. yet i have no backing with regards to my performance with regards to you know my ability as an academic my ability as a lawyer people wouldn't give it a lot of credibility right people will see perhaps he's sensitive about a certain issue and he just wants a platform to brew anarchy between people who are on paper working well and working in unison so i said a more premeditated approach would be first to establish myself as a person race not included which is good yeah let me push back here i can hear already you are applying put your house in order yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so jordan peterson has done well for you in your life <laughs> nothing can dismantle that yeah. put your house in order right yeah. so when you you know when you step outside you, you when you have a voice it's an impeccable absolutely way so um voice so to say um but i'm thinking at the same time it's good to sort of watch and let my work speak for itself and whatever but you are in a very dangerous Let me not say dangerous. I, I, I discover that you don't like negative words. <laughs> I'm a bastard. <laughs> But you are you are in a space that you are in a space that you can be tested very hard. While we're speaking of corporate law and whatever, but at the same time, your kind of activism. I'm curious, knowing, for instance, at this particular moment, there's uh, voice to parliament, right? Yeah. In Australia. Yeah. If you were given that as a mood test or yeah. whatever to sort of engage in, yeah. and you are aware that there will be Aboriginal elders who are watching over. So for those who are not 
for those who are not aware of what voice to parliament is probably do you do, do you want to do you want to touch base or should i go i think you should go i'd rather I'll have you as my guest <laughs> i wouldn't say voice to parliament has a bit of a legal background let's not okay yeah oh, oh yes no but just explain it because i want to set the ground with that so that they understand what it what because the, the initial question that i wanted to ask of you yes yeah. it doesn't have a, 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 a legal standing because it's something proposed to legislature yeah. right which is a good thing yeah. but i'm just thinking now that topics of such nature let's say it's even something that has to do with the aboriginal culture yeah. or beliefs or practices you know aboriginal and straight and tourist islander people yeah. right if it involves them the the politics of colonization in australia of colonialism in australia is might is similar to colonization in many other places right that's correct yeah so as a person of color you might I feel like there might be a more better proclivity to sort of advocate for Aboriginal beliefs as opposed to I'm, don't don't say nothing as yet because that might be you putting an assassination to your career. I know very well, right? But point is, you might want to say, "Let me put my house in order," but your house in order also has to do with you being apparent and transparent from the get go in terms of. How would you advocate for any Aboriginal concern yeah. if ever it has to be in a legalistic framework? That's true. Um, or let's say now as a person of color, as a migrant, someone says to you, yes, it's voice to parliament is not on a legal framework yet. It's, 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 it's an advice. So voice to power is basically voting to have... Uh, so it's going to be sent on a referendum. It's going to be contested mid-year and then o- o- towards, obviously, August around October, somewhere towards October, somewhere that it might be spread through to the public where they have to vote as to whether they're giving voice to power to Aboriginal people, which is, which this will constitute a body of Aboriginal elders who give advice to legislature about how, you know, Aboriginal people should be governed, issues of politics and socioeconomic standing and so on and so forth, which is completely different to a treaty, right? Yeah. Because a treaty was more about having Aboriginal elders making final decisions on behalf of Aboriginal people, whereas votes to Parliament is more about we giving advice. Yeah. And getting back to my statement earlier on about how Australia cannot speak a lot about racism is in the fact that even voice to par- treaty did not work yeah. in a sense that it was declined. Uh, but voice to Parliament, which is having an Aboriginal body giving advice that in itself is considered a spewing division in society, right? True. But for me, I'm thinking, wow, this is, this is a hard one in a space where we also want to celebrate multiculturalism. But the question is, who should speak on behalf of people's cultures then? Yeah. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this as a complexity to you who's got the knowledge in terms of corporate and international human rights. You, you, you're grounded in those even though you've got a speciality, but I'm saying you might want to work out your own, you know, what is Peterson saying? Perhaps you put own, your house in order. Yeah, you might want to put your yeah. house in order, right? Yeah. But at the same time, what if you're given them the opportunity to say, let's hear what's your take about this. Would you choose to be apathetic because you don't want to have a career, your career assassinated, or you would really go all out? And how does all out look like? I'm sorry for being unfair with this question to you. but No, that's a great question. Don't apologize. I think go all out has a context with so far as how you're, far you're going to advocate for the rights of indigenous people. For me, I feel very privileged to be exposed to their culture, to their, you know, some of their traditions and customs. And as far as voice to parliament, I think it's a great thing. Having a few people make the decisions for a large group um, is not very democratic. The hallmark of a democratic society is one in which most people are involved in the decision making. And I think that platform will be given by voice to parliament. So I'm interested to see how it will unfold as more people are invited to the stage, particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people who are the indigenous custodians of the land, whose you know, ancestors have been here for centuries and centuries and who have a spiritual connection to the land, they should have the biggest say with regards to how those resources are being distributed. But in saying that, you know, as a migrant person, my perspective is the same. Marginalization with regards to race, with regards to people of color, is similar across the board. So I'll stand in solidarity 
as an ally i can't go as far as saying that i understand their struggle because that wouldn't be a true version of events i, I yeah. do not but i'd go as far as saying i'm an ally to some of the struggles they've seen as being as someone who was subjugated under colonialism and neo-colonialism right now yeah. by some of our african leaders so i definitely play my part in educating myself to some of their struggles and definitely raise my hand up as someone who has a legal background in advocating for their rights particularly with regards to the aboriginal legal services more people who have an expertise in aboriginal affairs particularly indigenous customs need to be made judges need to be made magistrates in those communities it, in my opinion i don't think it's fair to bring someone from a different background perhaps from a european background who may not have a grounding in some of these indigenous customs of aboriginal people to adjudicate over their issues particularly on contentious issues like life sentences um, yeah. these certain decisions need to be made by people within their community because it also boosts societal unity if we have a community let's say community x and a grievous crime happens in community x you know the most rational understanding would to be someone who has a high grounding in community x makes a decision with regards to that community not someone from community y who perhaps does not have an in-depth knowledge of some of our social fabrics as our community comes as an outsider and makes a decision that's binding and that cannot be appealed anywhere in my opinion that's not a good application of the law so voice to parliament would provide a great platform for people to handle their own affairs and also to celebrate diversity a win for the people of uh, indigenous background is a win for people of all cultures who are a minority here in australia because today it might be them tomorrow it might be us perhaps in the future god willing we might have ad- advocates for people of african descent to make adjudications on their own affairs you see how people you know from our backgrounds are struggling with regards to visa appeals in the administrative appeals tribunal you see how people from our culture don't have any legal representation particularly in mm-hmm. south melbourne parts of victoria mm-hmm. people who are suffering from crimes assault robbery and are being extradited to their home countries to serve life imprisonment sentences that shouldn't be the case where there's so many academics experts legal professionals who can adjudicate over those affairs who can understand what's happening within those societies and that's something that we're advocating for within the african um, young lawyers association there's one here the headquarters in melbourne but oh. they spread across the country and i'm a member nice yeah so just going back to your question justice and peace for one person is justice for everyone so i can't be an apathetic person and look at the struggles of a community and say ah i'm not really privy to that information so i'll step aside no if anything you should raise your hand up as an ally say i want to educate myself on these issues mm-hmm. because today it might be raining and it's leaking in your house mm-hmm. but tomorrow it will be leaking in mine so i need to come and examine your roof I mean examine your social fabric as an indigenous person find out what's happening and then put that in my house so the day that it comes where the issues in my house um as a legal professional of african descent i'll have learned what has happened in the indigenous society and i'm able to make an informed decision because i know how they solve their own issues and the ramifications thereof so yeah i think that's a great question but that is considered as taking up space because now we have to listen to aboriginal aboriginal people and then now we have to listen to migrants so where's our space and part of the xenophobic rhetorics that you've probably even had in south africa yeah. is these migrants are here taking up our jobs yeah. and taking out our wives and our space yeah we're here to stay <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness. No, that's, that's just an anecdotal yeah. note, but I think taking up space is a great thing. Providing a platform for all people within the country to speak, regardless of their background, regardless of perhaps their descent, is a step in the right direction for any country that claims to be a world leader with regards to democracy. You see it in the more developed countries in the United States, in the United Kingdom, even in parts in Asia where perhaps it wasn't fashionable. to listen to issues of inclusivity and diversion and australia should be no exception you know this is a country that has enormous potential with regards to the rate in which the multiculturalism is growing i don't know the particular statistic but i know it's quite big and in order to provide a, pl- a platform for these people particularly skilled migrants who are going to positively stimulate their economy they need to be given a platform to advocate for their own rights to ensure the betterment of society and inclusion 
if what you don't know you will fear it and what you fear you will put measures in place to dissuade people from trusting them but the moment you know it and you know people of these communities and you you're a proponent of assimilation it not only benefits you as a person you grow in your identity once you can accept people from different races mm-hmm. but you also grow your society where people are comfortable to be themselves people are comfortable to live within their truths and within their traditions without being victimized against and i think for me it's just a step in the right direction and can only get better as more people come in right we'll have to wrap in a couple of minutes but i wanted to sort of get from you how do you set yourself for a win coming from kenya going to south africa and then now in australia and in terms of your studying in terms of your practice corporate law would you say there's differences in terms of corporate law in kenya south africa and here and how how do you stretch yourself also to the point of having to understand and respect indigenous laws or traditional laws in those very same contexts absolutely i think there are certain contrasts with regards to obviously serious tenets of the law such as the death penalty same sex marriage human rights and land dispossession but in regards to corporate law i think the similarities are there for everybody to see mm-hmm. all three countries kenya south africa and australia have a common law tradition as members of the commonwealth you know they have a hierarchical court system where lower cases listen to lower court and higher courts listen to more complex and more serious cases so you should be able to leverage that as someone perhaps of african descent or who's lived in all three countries to your advantage if anything it gives you an edge as to someone who's lived perhaps in australia their whole life and don't have the requisite information of what encompasses international trading and international law but in saying that you know you can't come with a perspective of you know more than the people there it's important as a lawyer or as any profession sociologist to leave your ego at the door mm-hmm. always be amenable to education develop a growth mindset teach yourself if i moved from kenya to south africa and i came with a perspective of you know i have a deep understanding of kenyan law so i'll be fine i don't think that would serve me in the long run so it's always important to leave your ego at the door be humble enough to learn different aspects be teachable increase your teachability index something jordan peterson also speaks about yeah. and always seek first to understand and then to be understood it's one of the tenets of the seven habits of highly effective people mm-hmm. seeking first to understand means saying even though i have a wealth of knowledge on this topic i want to hear your perspective first i'll reserve my comments once i hear what you have to say and i'll use your comments to complement what i know and that's something that served me well in my undergrad in south africa and it's definitely serving me well here in australia in postgrad yeah. yeah absolutely so for anyone who might be coming perhaps from africa to australia and is looking for talents to succeed how to transition into this new space i think visions and tones is a great platform first of all oh, to get you. some understanding <laughs> and further from that don't be afraid to reach out to some of the people that you might look up to within this space There's no iron cut into information. Most of the people if you reach out to them on social media or perhaps on other platforms, they'll be more than happy to assist because they've been through those struggles that you're going through currently. For me, I always said it was scary for me to come, you know, 24 25 hour flight across the world to further my studies and to give me a better chance at life, but it was made more of a soft landing because there were people who were here and they were willing to hold my hand. And I always say if you are helped, do everything you can to pay it forward. So I want to be a proponent of paying it forward. If anyone's listening to this episode or has been a fan of Dr. T's show like myself, please don't hesitate to reach mm-hmm. out to us. We're always in a position to pay it forward and I think mentorship helps both the mentee and the mentor. Right. Yep. Um I'm keen to chip in on the last question there or second last. Let's see what we can do. We've got about 1 minute exactly. Wow. Let's, Let's go. Is that need to decolonize law? absolutely trying to find a common ground for you know corporate western centric kind of and traditional indigenous or indigenous i think i can present arguments for and arguments against uh-huh. uh, there's an argument to decolonize the law because it's not very open and very available to people perhaps who might come from uh the position of the people who were colonized so they might not have a deeper understanding of some of these tenets that came during the colonial period but someone may also argue that it's not important to decolonize the law because this framework is what set forward our democracy that we experience today perhaps if we did not have 
you know the advent of colonialism would still be back in the dark ages where it was a patriarchal nature it was a monarchical nature and if you didn't come from a certain family or a certain community then you know your whole lineage is set forth to a life of being peasants or a life of being um subject to other people so there's an argument for and an argument against and it's a definitely a challenging balancing act uh as a good lawyer i always say it depends I'd love apart from it depends I'd love to have you again in the show so we can sort of speak more about decolonizing and, and yeah, that's a great topic. Australia has its own way of decolonizing which looks somewhat different to what is happening in Latin America and in Africa and also Africa is still divided as to whether do we decolonize or we pan africanize which is something else again oh, right so I'd love to sort of topic. have you so that we can talk further more about that what would be your parting shots Parting shot. Ah, that's a good one. Um, I always say uh, you're more capable than you think. You're stronger than you know. And true self-confidence comes from living a life that is congruent with your highest values. So live a life that is congruent with your highest values and you'll be very confident. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Eddie Onoka and thanks Edwin for coming to the show. Um I appreciate having you good. Thank you so you. much for having me Tony. It was a riveting discussion. Yeah, finally. <laughs> <laughs> As I always say to you visions and tones, go ye and be best human beings, be best versions of yourselves and we'll catch you next time. We are Sorry. out. Peace. Cheers.